Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. I am joined by Dr. Larry Arn. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. And if you're listening in order, you know we left you hanging. It was, a, it was like a series last week. We left you hanging with the Comanche and the Empire of the Summer Moon, the book that Dr. Arn recommended me. And we're going to get to Churchill and the Civil War for the rest of the hour, but i got to hear the end of the story of the two sisters, Dr. Arn. Mm. Well, these Parker sisters are in Texas. And they're captured by the Comanche, and they burn the face off Caroline Parker and return her to the Texas settlement, and that leads the authorities of Texas to issue a genocide order against the Comanche. On the other hand, Ruth Parker is kept, uh, marries the son of a chief, who eventually would be the greatest chief, Quanta, and so he's got a wife who's a white woman. And and he learns about the whites. Well, they all were. Partly by killing them, partly by stealing them, partly by trading with them. Anyway, the the she, Ruth Parker becomes a Comanche woman, and she's it's a very tight community, and she loves it. She is eventually captured back, and she pined away her life after that. Oh. Couldn't get back to the Comanche. She died in misery, being forced to live among the whites, to whom she was born. Now, Quanta, on the other hand, her husband, uh, he becomes the great Comanche chief, and he's very fierce, and he's also the one that made the peace. He's a very smart guy. He just looked at the numbers. And so he died as a real estate developer, wearing suits to work in Denver, Colorado. Well, I am going to get Empire of the Summer Moon now. Uh, I don't know how you came upon that, but I'm going to get that and listen to it. We'll talk about it someday. We, we all listen to it, by the way, on a motorcycle trip across the prairie. Because the, ah. the, the prairie is the devil. You, you need to ride a motorcycle across the prairie, and you'll see how big it is and how hostile it is. And that's where the Comanche thrived. You know, our friend Pompeo loves Kansas because it's large and flat. Our friend John Campbell loves Kansas because it's large and flat. I have never enjoyed driving across Kansas. Did you take the motorcycles on the 70 across Kansas? Oh, more than once, yeah. And, and there's no route across the plains of America that's not rugged and great. It's hotter than heck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the traffic moves at 90 miles an hour. So you've got to have a really big motorcycle. Because if you want to pass somebody, you've got to 110. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's a... Can I ask why you want to pass someone who's doing 105? Well, you, you know, it just things happen. You've know, you <laughs> you got a bunch of people strung out on a motorcycle. Somebody gets behind a truck, right? And then he's got to catch up. And I do not ever want to travel with you on a motorcycle. I love being with you, but I am not. That's not my idea of a good time. Let's get to Churchill. And why the big question Volume 11 of the History of the English-Speaking People, 
is all about America. I mean, volume, uh, book 11, which is in volume four of the history, is all about America. It's all about mostly the American Civil War, though it begins in 1815, gets up to 1850 before he gets gone on slavery. Why does Churchill, in the history of English-speaking people, spend all of one of 12 books on the American Civil War? Uh, well, it's, uh, uh, it's, he liked war. Uh, he understood it. Uh, he was taken around the battlefields by Douglas Southall Freeman. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which, uh, you know, he wrote the great biography of Lee and the great biography of Lee's lieutenants. And, uh, and it is, you know, it is the precursor to the First World War. And Churchill wrote this after he wrote about the First World War. But in that war, he saw terrible things developing in technology and war which are the same terrible things we talked about two weeks ago when we talked about the way elections are managed in detail down to the individual voter. Uh, and, and so the American Civil War is the first time that uh, it, it, mass firepower could be brought to bear on attacking troops. And so now, all of a sudden, the advantage is on the defensive. Uh, and, and that means that you get these, you know, the other thing is, and, you know, Churchill describes all this, especially in Marlborough, his life and times. Uh, in, in, the, in the wars of Marlborough, which are around 1700, they can't really fight in the winter because the roads are right. impassable. You, gotta, you know, wagons can't get over them. They're muddy and awful. But also, you couldn't get enough food together in the winter to feed an army. You had to be when the crops are coming in, because otherwise they'd starve. And so, uh, wars in those days took the winter off. Well, even into these days in Afghanistan, there's the fighting season. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And they don't have modern logistics, right? Because they don't need them. You can't get there from here. Well, well, let me ask you before we go to a segment, we'll start talking about Lee and Jackson and all that. But Churchill obviously believes in national character, or at least in regional character. In the first part of, of Book 11, he writes about the character of the Northern American, the character of the Southern American, and the character of the Western American. He believes in, if not national characters, in regional characters. And I, I wonder, do you think that still obtains today when oh, we are man. polyglot? I have just come back. From the National Finals Rodeo in Las Vegas, uh-huh. and man, I'm, I'm at Hillsdale College. We're going to cowboy up. It's <laughs> you just you just have to love that. And I mean, I have been. I broadcast from there. I asked the stupidest question in the history of the show there, and I won't I won't take up time. How did you like it? Character of the West on display? Oh, it's wonderful, right? And the people are wonderful. It's it's just too great, and uh, you know. It, Every night there's a prayer and the national anthem, uh, and then you know these cowboys, right? It's just the the best thing is calf roping because you get to watch these brilliant horses work independently of their riders to catch the calf, and then the rider jumps off the horse the minute he throws his lariat and runs to the calf, and the horse controls the calf while he throws it on its on its back and ties its feet up 
so they can brand it and vaccinate it. That's why they were doing that. And then, you know, it's just amazing. And, and You know, we're, we're recording this. Someone might be listening to this in 20 years, and they won't get this reference, but everyone will get this reference right now. We are recording this as the show's Yellowstone enters its fourth series, a season with Kevin Costner. Everybody loves Yellowstone. It's not for everyone. It's not for children. But everyone loves Yellowstone, and my theory is everyone has a deep nostalgia in the American soul for the West, and yeah. they, they glimpse it in Yellowstone. That's it. I, I, uh, uh, so, I, you know, I was around some real cowboys, you know, and that's people that, you know, they can ride a bull for eight seconds. Uh, there are 15 contestants at the national, roughly, at the national finals rodeo, and the bull riding is the worst. It's also the one thing they don't actually do on a ranch. Everything else that's an event in a rodeo is things cowboys need to be good at to handle cows. Bull riding is just for the crazy. It comes right at the end. Yep. And, and, and uh, you know, and, and the greatest cowboy, I didn't meet him. I met, I met many cowboys. It's, it's an honor to me. But uh, Stetson Wright is the greatest cowboy. And there'll be 15 guys try to ride a bull for eight seconds, and four of them will manage. And Stetson Wright does it every night. Every night. Really, really amazing. And, uh, and you know, those bulls are not agreeable people. <laughs> <laughs> I, look, when I was there years ago, I, I asked, uh, it might have been Stetson, what's easier to ride the black or the brown cow? I said, that's a stupid question after he assured me there were no stupid questions. It is a, an amazing gathering of people. Did you go see their trailers, by the way, like I told oh, you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was with a wonderful man named Mike Ingram in Scottsdale, who's one of the founders of the National Finals Rodeo back when it was in Oklahoma City. And, uh, and he, you know, so I had, I met a lot of really great people. And, uh, it, it's a fabulous, it's a bottling of what was once general into what is not so general now. And yeah. everyone ought to go. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm coming right back with Dr. Larry Arm. We're going into the Civil War as Churchill understood it. And there's no better person to have it seen through the eyes than through Winston Churchill. On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. Honor is very important. Also, the classics are clear. It's not the highest order good because it depends so much on the quality of the person who gives it. You know, the delight of a friend. I assert to everybody watching this, but they can tell for themselves, these are two very high-quality individuals. They live their life in a serious way. And so if they think something of one, one is pleased. If you take a being that knows more than they know and is quicker than they are, and it says what you've taught it to say, it's very corrupting of one if he thinks that's honor. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now. Only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio. And subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu.
Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt talking about volume 11 of the history of the English-speaking peoples. And segment two is devoted to Generals Lee and Jackson, who can no longer be discussed in America because they were, to their, uh, not to their credit, slave owners. But Churchill spends a lot of time talking about Lee and Jackson. He admires them for their, quote, mastery of the technical arts of war. But he admires Lincoln much more for his ability to bring in four slave states as allies in his effort to end slavery. What do you make of his admiration of Lee and Jackson? Well, uh, I mean, uh, so Jackson, they're different people, right? They're, they're Very. Uh, Jackson was crazy in his way, uh, and, and uh, he, he was a wild man. He, he was a fierce fighter. Uh, the, uh, he's the fiercest fighter in the Civil War, probably. And, and, uh, he, so, uh, he, uh, well, when they dedicated, uh, they dedicated a statue to Jackson before was, was, the war was over, but after Jackson was killed. And, uh, and the, the man who said a prayer said, Dear Lord, if it be thy will, that, that we should lose this war, it was necessary for thee to remove from us the services of Thomas Jackson. <laughs> ah. <laughs> you know, he just was really something. Shot and, by his own troops by mistake, by the way. Friendly yeah, fire. That's right. And he, and he was, you know, and he just got marvels out of them. And Lee was a very imaginative commander. I actually think that Churchill is wrong about something about Lee, but I'll get to that. Um, uh, he, you know, at Chancellorsville, which is one of the great battles, uh, Joe Hooker, so the Civil War in the bloodiest part of it, in the Shenandoah Valley, right, that's uh, across the Potomac from Washington and heads south down into Virginia, and you're in the Shenandoah Valley, and that's a very difficult valley because there's low hills ranged by high hills, and they run north and south, and there are gaps in the low hills that make it hard to pass except when you go through the gaps. And that means if you go marching down the Shenandoah Valley, you're always exposing yourself to attack from behind by somebody who's circled back behind you. And, but before you even get to that, you have to get through an area called the wilderness, which is just really rough ground, uh, briars and all kinds of stuff. Just forest, low scrub forest. And so they, they, Joe, Joe Hooker gets himself through the wilderness intact with a huge force, and he's got Lee outnumbered. And, you know, they could win the war right there uh, because the, the numbers were staggering in favor of the Union for many battles in the war and for the whole war. Well, what Lee did was he took a part of his already inferior force, and he sent, it, sent Jackson ranging around looking for a flank. You know, just, and, you know, the way communications work back then, they're not going to talk to each other for a day or two, right? They're not going to be able to communicate. And so Jackson goes and he, he, he moves left, uh, which was west, and, and uh, uh, he probes up and he... When he runs into something, he goes farther west. And he keeps doing that until 
he gets behind the Union forces. Now, the, the Union forces have sat there long enough for him to accomplish that maneuver. They had the advantage. They didn't attack. They waited. And then he shows up in their rear. Well, that's a, you know, that's a tremendous thing. And, and uh, nobody managed to do that to William Sherman. But they, the, the, and no one did it to Grant when Grant came down two years later. No, uh, they didn't. They, he that's, flanked Lee. That's right, and he and you know Grant, uh, the, the Shenandoah Valley, uh, uh, Churchill, uh, he he underrates Grant in my opinion. Uh, but you know what do I know? When we come back, when I'm going to talk about Grant and and the change of generals when we come back, because Churchill had to change generals a few times. Don't go anywhere, America. Dr. Larry Arn and I are talking about Winston Churchill writing about the Civil War in the middle 1950s, and it's really remarkable stuff. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. All the battles, Chancellorville, Gettysburg, they're all covered in volume, in book 11 of volume four of Churchill's History of the English-Speaking People. In fact, right down to the Seventh-day Battle and to the Battle of the Merrimack and the Monitor, Churchill loves the Civil War. But Dr. Arn just said he did not much, he underrated Grant. He writes on, I think it's page 241, on March 9th, President Lincoln appointed Ulysses Grant to command all the armies in the United States. At last, on the northern side, there was unity of command and a general capable of exercising it. You know, Churchill, when he put together his war cabinet in World War II, he was in charge of everything, wasn't he? Yeah, and he took care about that, right? He, he learned, uh, he paid his tuition for the Second World War in the First World War. Oh, because wow. he tried to... He fought so hard for the strategy he preferred in the First World War, which might have worked, but he wasn't the boss. And that meant that all of the other non-bosses were able to leave him holding the bag when difficulties arose. And so he, he, the, the issue was the Dardanelles. We've been talking about that, the, the fight over uh, the Sea of Marmara and the Straits of the Dardanelles leading up to the Black Sea and the Crimea, and that was a turning point in that war, as it has been in many wars. And and uh, uh, Churchill, when he when he made his administration in the Second World War, he made himself min- prime minister, minister of defense, and a member, the only political member of the Imperial General Staffs Committee. That meant the, his, uh, our Joint Chiefs, uh, and so he had all the powers. Of war in his hands, and he he uh, he writes, and that was very valuable to him. We know because uh, after Pearl Harbor, there was a very bad year for the Allies in the Second World War, and in the middle of it, now it's sort of known that the British and the Allies are going to win. America's in, and Russia's in, and and uh, so there's more latitude to censure the government. And so they bring a no-confidence vote against him. Uh, and Roger Keyes, one of 
one of the sailors from the First World War, when Churchill was first ordered the Admiralty, become a great British military figure and a member of Parliament, he proposes the motion of no confidence, and he says, we cannot hope to win this war without the Prime Minister at the helm, but he's doing too much. He should give up his defense uh, positions. And, and Churchill stands up and replies to him in the House of Commons, this house can, may have any, all of my jobs on any day it wants them. It may not have one of them. Huh. And then uh, Key stands up and says, uh, Mr. Speaker, I withdraw my support for this motion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am curious if this has uh, informed your administration of Hillsdale and whether it ought not. And I think it informs Elon Musk's approach to whatever he decides to do. He wants the authority. Not well, necessarily the power. He wants to run things. Well, it's not just that. It's, it's to run them legitimately. And to do that, yes, yes, authority yes. and responsibility goes together. If you're going to have responsibility for something, you should have the authority to get it done. And if you fail, then it's your fault, right? And so I, I did learn that from Winston Churchill, and I've always, you know, I've worked for nonprofit boards all my life. And I always tell them, I'm, I'm going to run the place. You guys can fire me any day. You know, I, I, and I stole that when I got the call to go back and run the Nixon Library. And I said, under one rule, which is I, I run everything, I hire everyone, and you can fire me anytime. And they did. And then I hired my replacement after two and a half years, Jim Byron, who's there now. And I told him, get control of everything, and when they take it away from you, quit. Because you can't run anything unless that, but you've got to have people who can fire you, right? That's right, and uh, it's a, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, it's the only safe way, and and it's the only effective way, right? Because, and and see, you can't have all the power yourself. That would be wrong. I work for a board; they can fire me whenever they want to. Correct. And and uh, it's uh, that, and see, that's legitimate. Then, and Churchill figured that out, and. He, he writes a beautiful passage about uh, Lincoln and Sherman and Grant and Sheridan. Uh. And I have a copy of a painting that Churchill was looking at. We have hanging at the college a copy of a painting that Churchill was looking at when he describes the scene where they met on the presidential yacht on the Potomac. And he says, in, in rough terms, when those... Four men sat down together. That spelled the death of the South. <laughs> now, I, I got to ask before we run out of time in this segment, we're going to talk about Lincoln, Churchill, and Lincoln in a second. But um, Lincoln was bad at picking generals to begin with, and then he got good at it when he picked Grant and Sheridan and Sherman. Uh, Churchill reluctantly made changes in his generals, but he finally fired the guy in charge of Egypt, and he got Montgomery in there. Was he good or bad at general picking? Well, uh, nobody's good or bad at it, right? Because that's the kind of thing that you can't know till they do it, right? Because leading in combat is a unique endeavor, and you can drill all day long, and it doesn't tell you whether you can do that or not. You know, I've been blessed to actually interview our three greatest generals, or three of our greatest generals, I don't want to be exclusive, generals McChrystal, Petraeus, and Mattis. And I'm not ranking them, I just that's the order they came into my mind. And 
they are all very, very different people, and they've all written very, very different books, and they were all very, very good at war, about which I know nothing, right? I know zero about running war, and so I, I'm very reluctant to talk about it. But it took, eight, it took W. Bush a long time to figure out Petraeus could win in Iraq, and then Obama took McChrystal out of Iraq, uh, out of Afghanistan when he was winning because of a Rolling Stone interview. I always thought that was the stupidest thing we saw in the administration of both wars until the end of the Afghan war under Joe Biden. And it all comes down to how you run your generals, because civilians don't know how to do it, Dr. Arndt. They just have well, to make, they have to pick the people who do. Yeah, well, it's actually worse than that. Also, soldiers don't know how to do it, <laughs> except, <laughs> except a, a few of them do. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Yeah. We've got mean, plenty I, of, we got, you just mentioned Joe Hooker in the last segment. He was drunk all the time because he was overwhelmed. You know, uh, Hooker wrote, uh, Lincoln was very funny. He wrote a, a uh, message to Lincoln, and he closed it, From my headquarters in the saddle, Joe Hooker. And uh, Lincoln read the message to the Capitol, and he said, General Hooker has his headquarters where his hindquarters are supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that kind of humor. Uh, we, I was reading about Lincoln in this book and thinking about on Lincoln. It's awfully, it's awfully extraordinarily rare to find funny leaders. Do you agree with me on that? Yeah. They're just not generally not very funny. It's hard to be funny and to be a good leader. And both Lincoln and Churchill are great wits. Yeah, you know, uh, there's something about that. Like uh, Socrates was funny. Uh, Achilles was not. No, no. <laughs> No, 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 no. He was, as we know him, as presented by Homer. Maybe Homer left out the funny parts. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's, you know, very strong sense of his own importance. And uh, it, uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, and see, just people who can see. What it it amounts to is, it's like Churchill, the way Churchill, the reason his account of the Duke of Marlborough is, so important is because there at the greatest length does he describe the character of statesmanship and what it takes. And in the end, what it, what it amounts to is just this. He can grasp and understand things that other people cannot. And, We're going to uh, do Marlboro, by the way. I want to assure the audience. I just have to get back to California and get my annotated volume, or I, I can't read it again in real time. I've just dividing it up will be hard. It's a very difficult thing. I want to close this segment, though, by our friend Andrew Roberts writing about Napoleon said something, and I'm going to misquote it here. He never saw, uh, he never took a view of anything without seeing it as a battlefield. That's all he ever did. He saw every, couldn't look at anything without seeing it instantly, as he did when he became Napoleon, the battlefield that was in front of him. And he knew immediately, uh, you just described the Shenandoah Valley. You look at geography and you see battles. It's not something I can do. Yeah. Well, it, you know, if you marched around on the ground for a long time, thinking somebody might pop out of anywhere and shoot you, <laughs> that helps the sharp. That helps, the concentrates the mind wonderfully, <laughs> to borrow from John. I'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Lincoln, Churchill on Lincoln, when we return to Book 11 of Volume 4 of the History of English-Speaking People. On the new episode of The Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. The confusion is all around us now. I protest about education today that uh, the debate, almost the entire debate, 
It's about what we do to the kids to get them the way we want. They think uh, when they talk about outcomes, ultimately what they mean is, is it the kind of person we want to make? And the we want is crucial. So I fear that and think that that way of thinking makes us prey to the worst forms of the artificial intelligence outcomes. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio. And subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu. Welcome back, America. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. We are on book 11, which is in the fourth volume of The History of the English-Speaking People. The death of Lincoln deprived the Union of the guiding hand, which alone could have solved the problems of Reconstruction and added to the triumph of armies, those lasting victories which are gained over the hearts of men. The beautiful line on page 263, Dr. Arn. Do you think, I mean, Andrew Johnson was far from being the only person around, but could anyone but Lincoln have done Reconstruction? Well, uh, that's, you know, that's the fun thing about history. Uh, you can say anything you want to about the things that didn't happen. <laughs> but Lincoln was uh, determined and eloquent. And that meant, and those are two things that uh, at least one of them, Andrew Johnson, didn't have. Uh, Lincoln wanted the blacks treated fairly. But he didn't want to turn the country into a despotism. And there's the controversy. Lincoln says, and I'm going to misquote it, or I'll paraphrase it, a universal opinion, whether rightly or wrongly held, cannot be safely ignored in a democratic country. Right? So people did not want to live together. Large numbers of people did not want to live together with black people as equals. And so if you make them, then you have, they're not a free people anymore. And so this whole mystery of free government is people have to want it and sacrifice for it. The glory of the American people is that they have done that as much as any people ever. But... They weren't ready to do that. You know, I mean, if you just think about the tragedy of that whole thing, right, of slavery and black people being the slaves, uh, the tragedy is very deep, right, because they're brought here before there's a union, uh, opinion ossified over the course of the first half of American, first hundred years of American history, because we got this idea that they had evolved to be a different kind of thing from us. That's John Calhoun's idea. The great they are our in American inferiors. political theory. Yep. And John Calhoun did it. I call it Calhoun's sin. That's it. And that's, uh, and, you know, but that's German historicism brought to America and turned to race. The other great turn it takes is to class. And, and so now, all of a sudden, slavery is defended as a good thing which it wasn't at the time of the founding, never had been. Uh, So, yeah, and that means that people are not ready 
to live with black people as equals. And would have taken a lot more eloquence of the sort that was in the second inaugural. But Johnson, <laughs> no one had it except Lincoln. I don't know. You that, know, there's I, an example of the eloquence, I think, that's a microcosm of what has what is needed today, has been needed from the beginning. In uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates, uh, there's a beautiful path. Like, all of the inspiring and beautiful things that are said in the Lincoln-Douglas debates are said by Lincoln. Douglas never says any of them. His, his politics are basically an appeal to interest. The country's founded on the white basis. Of course, we want to be good to the blacks. In Illinois, we just don't want them here, right? And each locality is perfectly competent to decide for itself what he wants to do about them. See, Lincoln says, uh, uh, in response to taunts by Douglas, especially in southern Illinois, where Lincoln lost a lot of votes to people who were you know, living not so far from slavery, uh, Douglas says, uh, uh, I'll have you know that Lincoln's friend Fred Douglas our college speaker, has driven through this town in the last week in a carriage ridden by, driven by a white man. If that's the kind of thing you want to see, vote for Lincoln. Well, okay, sure. But Lincoln's response to that is sublime. He doesn't actually respond to it directly, he says. The black woman, he says, may not be our equal in several respects, but in her right eat the bread that she earns with the sweat of her own face. She's as equal to every one of us and every living person. You know, Hillsdale has a statue, I believe, of Frederick Douglass. I just finished Brian Kilmeade's fine book on the president and the freedom fighter. And, it, it, you know, it's not an in-depth biography of both of them, but it's a good introduction. And I did not know that Frederick Douglass went to the second inaugural and was going to be thrown out, and then Lincoln rescued him. He said about the second inaugural to the Lincoln... It was sacred. They, they were an interesting pair. You get the yeah, last yeah. 30 seconds, Dr. Arn. Well, they didn't meet very often. Twice, I think. But yeah. uh, they found out each other. And, they, and you know, uh, Douglas gave some beautiful eulogies of, of Lincoln after Lincoln died. And, and, you know, he mostly understood that what Lincoln was trying to do was what Douglas was trying to do but Lincoln was doing it in the way that a president could do it. Amen to that. I will be back next week, America, with the next Hillsdale Dialogue, where we will get to Bismarck, Gladstone, and Disraeli and wrap up our 12-part History of the English-Speaking People. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.